that it was pretty critical and I knew that I may or may not live. They cut a piece out of my scalp and put a tube through the ventricles in my brain to let the fluid drain. Two Hi, I'm Landa Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and this is a podcast series about mateship, about life in the bush, and about the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in servicing rural communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. I felt like a pop, and that's the massive pain, so it had to be something serious for uh, such a sudden, terrible pain. In recent times, the Royal Flying Doctor Service has been working closely with a group of organisations in what we call the Australian Stroke Alliance. And this has the express purpose of solving the problem of stroke response. There are two types of strokes. Very simply put, there is a stroke that's been caused by a blood clot or there's a stroke that's been caused by a bleed. And the medical response is different depending on which of these it is. To discover which of these two scenarios is causing a stroke requires imaging. But traditional CT scanning equipment is very large, very heavy and expensive, which means that CT scanning equipment is generally only found in large tertiary hospitals. This presents a real problem for stroke victims who are in rural, remote or very remote Australia, as the imaging equipment that is vital for their survival is sometimes hours away. And this tyranny of distance can make the difference between life or death, or minimally, drastically impact the recovery time and patient quality of life moving forward. The Australian Stroke Alliance is developing new technology for lightweight stroke imaging equipment that can be used on planes, in helicopters, and in road ambulances. This is a game changer for the Royal Flying Doctor Service and for health service organisations all across the country. It's very exciting. And that brings in today's story with Terence Miller who suffered a stroke in Mudgee, where there was no local available imaging equipment. His story is a scary one, and I appreciate that Terence is here to come and tell us about the journey he's been on. G'day, Terence. G'day, how are you? I'm good. Now, have you lived in Mudgee for long? I've lived here for going on 13 years. And what do you love about it? I grew up in a town on a farm uh, probably about 130 k's from uh, Mudgee, uh, west of Wellington, and um, yeah, travelled around Australia a fair bit and ended up living in South Australia for 25 years. But I always thought Mudgee would be a good place to come back and, and live. Yeah, it's just beautiful country, easy place to live. It's sort of got everything that you uh, need as far as yeah, just resources. I guess it's a Wiradjuri country. I grew up in Wiradjuri country and, and it, yeah, it just feels like home. That's fabulous. Now, not many people can say that they're a train driver. How did you get into that sort of role? I sort of uh, was fascinated by trains a bit when I was a little kid. We um, uh, lived on a farm and I could hear the old steam train in the distance going through Arthville and and that was about uh, about eight miles as far as the uh, crow flies. And as a little kid, I'd climb up on the roof so I could actually see the train from the distance. We moved back to Mudgee, as I said, 12 years ago to be closer to my mum for her last years and um, started working here in the nursing home with a disability support service. And after my mum died, I um, didn't want to do that anymore and 
I got a job with some friends working as a barista in a cafe. I was there for about 11 months and a job was advertised for uh, train drivers based at Mudgee. And I thought, oh, I couldn't do that. But then uh, my niece who uh, rang me and she um, she's a very good talker. Anyway, she spent about an hour on the phone talking to me and encouraged me to apply for this job, uh, which I did. Got an interview and um, yeah, got offered the job. I was thinking, oh, this is just too much to learn. And, and, um, but at the end of the week, first week, I thought, well, I know more today than I did at the start of the week. After three months, I thought, well, I've still got so much to learn. I don't think I can do this, but I know a hell of a lot more than I did three months ago. And um, just, yeah, that's the way I've continued to, to, to view it, I guess. I'm always learning. Is it a fun role? Like I, I've got two boys and so, you know, being a train driver has always been high on the list of things um, that they've wanted to do. But it, is it fun? Is it an enjoyable workplace? Definitely, yes. Yeah, um, we, we roll through the most beautiful country and drive from uh, the mines at Mudgee because I'm a, a coal train driver and uh, we drive from the mines at Mudgee to uh, Newcastle and we go through the Bylong Valley, which is just absolutely stunning. We follow the, sort of the Goulburn River but the, yeah, the scenery is stunning and it changes all year. Um, the seasons, each season, so it's different. So you see something different every every journey. And also nothing really goes to plan as a train driver, so there's always something. There's, you know, breakdowns or, or whatever, track failures or whatever, and so there's different issues to deal with every day. So uh, it makes it interesting. And there's always two people on the train, so you we have about, I think, a bit over 30 drivers at Moji now, so... You're working with someone different on a day-to-day basis, so you you have that sort of, uh, I guess, uh, intimate relationships with with the, you're spending a sort of eleven hours a day with with someone, so you, you get talking and have lots of conversations. So, yeah, I, I love the job; it's uh, a fun job. That's fabulous. Now let's go to that day, that fateful day when you experienced. I think you described it as almost like an earth-shattering headache. Could you tell me? What had you been doing that day and uh, what led up to that point? I think it must have been coming on. Just before that, we'd been to Tasmania for, for a trip and I developed a sort of really bad neck ache and, and uh, yeah, it just wasn't feeling good for, for a couple of weeks. And on the day it happened, in the morning, my wife and I, we both had a day off. We went out to an olive farm in the morning for, for morning tea or whatever. And then we decided to go out to one of the uh, Celador sales places and had a had a, a wine tasting, and um, and I was just yeah just generally feeling I'm not not good. Then that evening, yeah, I was sitting. I went to the toilet. It was about nine o'clock at night, straining a bit too hard, and then bang, um, massive headache. Uh, the back started at the back of my head. It was I think they call them a thunderclap headache, but doesn't sound a strong enough term for it to me. It was uh, just uh, <laughs> immensely painful and it quickly spread over my head and I was able to come out to the uh, dining room where my wife was sitting and I said, I think I've had a stroke. Can you get an ambulance? So, Terence, what made you think that you'd had a stroke? The intensity of the pain, like it was, I, I, I felt like a pop, basically, and then and that's the massive pain. So the pain was that intense that it, couldn't have been anything else. Like it uh, had to be something serious for such a sudden, terrible pain. Then I just started shaking all over my whole body was shaking and I lay down in the lounge. The ambulance actually arrived within five minutes. Um, that doesn't always happen in Mudgee because we've called the ambulance before for another incident and there was no ambulance in Mudgee. They had to come across from Golgong, which was 30 k's away. 
So we, everything's sort of filling the place that night. The right people were there at the right time. But they uh, did a bit of an assessment and took my blood pressure and it was 220 over 127. And, and the uh, ambulance, officer, ambulance officer said, that'll make you feel a bit ordinary. <laughs> and uh, they um, gave me morphine for the pain. I guess I was in shock as well. Yeah, my wife asked me, was I cold or scared? And I said both. And it was probably shock as well. I was just, yeah, really strong shaking all over. My wife came with me up to the hospital in the ambulance. And uh, the uh, doctor on duty in emergency was someone that I was familiar with. She yeah, quickly diagnosed she thought I'd had a, a um, subarachnoid hemorrhage based on the, the headache, the nausea and um, severe neck pain. And the, they arranged for the ambulance to drive me across to Dubbo, which is about 145 k's roughly, because they didn't have these, the imaging equipment at uh, Mudgee Hospital. Yeah, so that was a pretty scary ride in the ambulance. And uh, that's when I, I yeah, started vomiting and stuff while I was travelling across there. Was your wife with you? Yeah, she was with me. Yeah, she was in the front seat. We arrived at Dubbo. It was probably... One o'clock in the morning, maybe, and uh, yeah, the uh, CT imaging confirmed I'd had a bleed at the back of the at the base of the brain. There was discussions between the doctors at Dubbo and and Royal Prince Alfred, and they uh, arranged, confirmed there was going to be a bed for me there in um, ICU. What was going through your head at the time? I guess I already knew that you know from the outset of the pain that I experienced that there was some bleeding going on there. Um, so when I got the news in Dubbo that I'd had uh, some bleeding. That was no surprise, um, but I was very aware that how yeah, critical that was. The doctor wrote on the whiteboard there beside my bed, subarachnoid hemorrhage, and that was the first time I heard that term. I actually didn't want to know any more. I knew there was bleeding there. I knew that it was pretty critical and I knew that I may or may not live. And I, I guess I'm a very matter-of-fact person and um, – I, I knew that there's people here that are going to help me and I'm in the best hands and that, yeah, I'm just going to go along with whatever they uh, need to do. What was most urgent for me was that Veronica would be would be near me. I just feel so much for people with the coronavirus who can't have people by their side because I, I feel pretty sure that I wouldn't have made it if she wasn't by my side. Thank you for sharing that, Terence. Now, what do they, excuse my ignorance, but what do they do when they've discovered that, okay, it's not a clot, it's a bleed? There's no further treatment until I got to, to Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, as far as I know. A uh, flight was uh, organised with RFDS uh, to leave at 10 o'clock in the morning and there was a few complications and that flight got cancelled. I ended up being on a flight five-ish in the afternoon. The delay, if I remember you right, was due to some confusion at the Dubbo Hospital that had actually ended up, it wasn't that the Royal Flying Doctor Service didn't want to take you anywhere, it was just that they had been told that you didn't need to go and then it was overridden as a decision, wasn't it? That's correct, yeah. There was a change in staff and there was a bit of confusion um, for whatever reason and um, the... uh, Registrar sort of made a decision that I, maybe I didn't need to go, but that was quickly turned around again. Luckily, fortunately, because uh, mm. as far as I know, I might be wrong here, but I, I don't know that Dubbo is equipped to be able to do the surgery that I required. Were you aware of what was happening and how time was passing? 
I was aware um, of what was happening. Um, I didn't sort of start going into unconsciousness till the following day. So, yeah, I was quite aware of what was going on and I was quite anxious because I I guess I'd, I'd, I'd had some experience through my life with stroke and I knew what was likely to happen to me. Um, so I was quite anxious that I did get on that flight and get to get to Sydney. So they finally got you onto an RFDS plane and sent you out to Sydney. What happened once you were there with your wife? When they were wheeling me into the hospital, they said, oh, you're getting, getting VIP treatment, you're going straight to ICU, which apparently doesn't usually happen. But, yeah, she took a while for her to find me because I wasn't on the records of actually being at the hospital yet. So luckily the the, the guy on the RFDS flight had given uh, Veronica, my wife, his phone number, so she was able to ring him and said, are you sure he's here? And and uh, he was very reassured. Yes, he's, he's definitely there. He's up in his ICU. Uh, so, yeah, she eventually found me up there. Yeah, there's not much I remember for the next couple of days. But I remember sitting with my son and um, I was starting to hallucinate, see things, and, and there's all these threads of cotton floating past my eyes and I'm saying, I'll snip them, snip them. My son is just laughing, didn't really know what was going on for me. My wife said, uh, I said, uh, paddy full of buckets, full of flowers. And she just <laughs> She's just sort of agreeing with me. That must be lovely. And I said, no, I'm sick of them. I'm sick of them. <laughs> so it was all this bizarre stuff I was saying. The reason that was happening was because I had fluid building up in the brain. Veronica and the nurses alerted the surgeons and they come in and had a talk to me and asked me, you know, where you know, do I know where I am? And I had a look around and <laughs> did a mudgy. I had a little bit of a chuckle and so I had no idea where I was or it was just very surreal looking. Like it's hard to explain, but it just whatever I could see wasn't really real. It was just totally foreign. I remember uh, being told I was going to have surgery. I don't remember the doctors telling me, but I remember being on the you know the trolley where they take you off to surgery, and my wife was trying to explain to me what was happening. She ended up saying to me, "You got hydrocephalus, and you're going to need emergency surgery." And I said, "Okay." <laughs> And uh, that was it, and they wheeled me off. Sometime after I woke up and realised they'd yeah, cut a piece out of my scalp and put a tube through to, through the ventricles in my brain to let the fluid drain. Wow. That was all very technical because I had, I had to be at a certain, sitting at a certain level in my bed and there was a, some sort of electrical little machine beside me on a stand and, and the fluid bag beside it, the fluid draining out of my brain through this machine, which sort of wow. kept measure of the pressure so that was a I had that training for 16 days so anytime I wanted wanted to move or be repositioned they had the nurses would come and close off this machine and get me repositioned and then turn it back on again um, because apparently it was vital that uh, that stayed at the right level so that I guess it was something to do with pressure. When you came out of surgery was it a relief to see your wife and to know you were there or were you still in a fog of just, you know, not knowing where you were? Yeah, I knew where I was then because the pressure had been relieved off my brain. So, yeah, I was sort of sensible again. Um, I was on a lot of drugs and and despite the amount of um, painkillers I was on, it was still incredibly painful. The incredible pain didn't subside till I think it was day 12. I guess it became a, a meditation for me because all I had was my breath, I guess. The pain was too 
too much to fight against or think about. Um, I just focused on my, my breathing and it became a very, getting on the spiritual side, a very, I'm not a religious person, but um, a very forgiving, self-forgiving thing. So anything anything that had sort of stressed me or worried me or I felt bad about in my life before, it was this whole cleansing process that I went through. And I think that was something to do with the, I guess, the meditation on the breathing and, and um, because uh, if I didn't do that, it was just too too painful. Was that a time period, Terence, where you were reflecting on life, both the past and the present and the future, or was it just just got to get through this because of this pain? A bit of both. Yeah, it was a lot of reflecting on the past, letting go of things I guess I'd held on to. Yeah, and just basically being determined to get through it because there, there was a day, it's probably, I don't know whether it was about day three, day four, and... My oxygen levels kept dropping really low, um, down to around the low 80%. And I'd, it felt really easy to just slip away. Like really, yeah, I, I definitely felt I had to actually focus on surviving. I was very much aware of two people that died beside me because the ICU there is an open plan area. It's a very busy place. And and um, if you're conscious, and most a lot of people aren't, but if you're conscious like I was after my operation, you're quite aware of what's going on around you. You can't, I couldn't see things, but I could hear the chatter and hear what was going on. And I knew that there was uh, two people who died beside me that had the same subarachnoid hemorrhage that I'd had. And that was something I really struggled with when I came home. My psychologist called it um, survival guilt, I think, but um, I didn't really see it as that. I didn't see if, if I see myself as guilty as surviving. I just felt really felt for those people and their families because I knew what a, I knew how hard I consciously fought to stay alive and I'd succeeded and I knew how, whether they were conscious or not, how hard they would have wanted to, to try and survive as well. So um, it was more my feeling for them that, that I've really struggled with. I completely empathise with that. I remember one morning I managed to call my wife, I think it was about morning four, and I just said, um, I remember saying to her, I'm getting close. And she said, close to what? Close to my last breath. And uh, I'll get a bit teary now. Um, but anyway, she was, she, was, she was staying at my sister's place in Sydney and, and, and this was about six o'clock in the morning. She came to the hospital every day. But, yeah, that was, that was probably the lowest point that about day four where I just thought I'm, I'm not going to get through this. And um, But as soon as... As soon as she arrived and uh, I held her hand, it was just this energy flow just um, that brought me back to life and uh, so I could become very, very dependent, very reliant on, on her. And and I remember getting to day nine and saying to Veronica, I just can't do this anymore because the pain was just relentless and, um, and the doctors just came and told her that get the date 12 and it'll be okay, like it'll it'll all ease day 12. And obviously they've had lots of experience in these things, no time to hang on. And there was a nurse also, all the nurses was as beautiful and wonderful, but one said to me, you're going to get through this, you're going to be okay. And that was probably the most, one of the most important things that someone said to me there. It's that reaffirmation, isn't it? You are going to be okay. And and I, I must say, Terence, that talking to you, reminds me of of so many different 
people that I've interviewed over the last year who talk about being in that precarious position of almost almost death, you know, like right there in the balance and and it becomes this decision of often directed or helped or reinforced by those that love them. That's right. That, you know, you can make this, you can do it. And then together, you, you've made me tear up with, uh, with your wife, describing your wife, holding your hand and, and so forth. And yeah. it sounds like she's just been that rock that's made sure that you've made it through this journey. Yeah, Veronica was absolutely wonderful through the whole thing. Did they keep you in the hospital for very long? So you were there for that 12 days, but were you there for an extended period afterward or did they discharge you fairly shortly after? From the time of the stroke, it was 16 days before I was moved from ICU up to the ward. I spent only a couple of days there, I think, and I got a flight back to Mudgee. I spent another night or two there in Mudgee, but they released me as a inpatient, so I could go home but come back if I needed to, and I did need to. So, I, yeah, I came home for probably was less than 24 hours, probably only 12 hours, but I developed a pretty nasty um, urinary tract infection. What was it like coming home after the hospital? Yeah, I was back home after within 22 days, 23rd day I was back home to stay. Um, and um, I remember getting out of the car on the front veranda and just breaking down in tears because I didn't think I'd be back there again. was the the rehabilitation process like did it take months for you to start to get your strength back and to be able to function normally and at what point were you able to actually go back to work because I understand that was quite an extensive period that's right yep there was a few things like I, I don't know whether it was because of the remainder I I had or whether it was something to do with the stroke but I couldn't say more than sort of half a word at the time probably till about three to four weeks after the stroke I just couldn't get the strength, in, you know, to get the voice, the, the words out. So they were very staggered conversations I would have. That was one of the things. I was just really weak. Like I'm not a, a big person anyway, but I just lost any muscle tone I had at all. So, you know, I could almost put my hand around my legs. So I was quite very frail. If I walked in, like if I went for an evening walk in the dark sort of thing, um, it was almost like I had vertigo. I couldn't um, trust where my feet were. Yeah, and uh, I, you know, spent a lot of time on the lounge and everyone, yeah, fussing over me. And uh, my first walks were just out the backyard to see the dogs. You know, I had to sort of walk and stick to hold me up and go out and, and pat the dogs, and and that was exhausting. Like anything like that was really exhausting. And I think it was about week five. I walked up to work. I only live about three hundred meters from where I start work from. Walked up there and back. Yeah, that was quite an effort. Um, and Veronica came with me to, to help me along. But from then on, I, my recovery became quicker and quicker. Um, I had a constant headache that just didn't go away for about six weeks and then that would ease and and um, I would have a headache every day. Probably for a good 12 months, I had a bad headache if I bent forward. It was like a, a weight shifting to the front of my head. But anyway, it was so my stroke was on... The, the 20th of May 2019 and um, it was about late August, so 
few months later, um, I went for my first little bike ride, and uh, it's uh, just a five k ride around the shared cycle walkway uh, along the river at Mudgee. Yeah, I remember being very pleased and proud of myself that I could sort of balance and and, and ride around there. Yeah, by this time I realised it was going to be quite a while. I mean, I wasn't allowed to drive a car for three months, and definitely wasn't allowed to operate uh, heavy machinery like a train for for at least twelve months. So I knew it was going to be a while to get, to get back to work. I must I say, let's acknowledge my workplace. They were fantastic. Just gave me wonderful support and had a couple of mates come around and chop firewood for us and stuff like that. I just yeah, I think it's good to mention the kindness of people too. I just had a knock at the door one morning and one of my work colleagues was there. He was in his in his work uniform and handed me an envelope and he said, "Don't open it till I've gone." I came inside and opened the envelope and and just had a, a note in there and he said, "I did an overtime shift for you." And um, there was five hundred dollars in there. I uh, was extremely touched by that, and I messaged him and said, um, "I know that this is something you would have given a lot of thought to, so I don't want to insult you by giving it back." And, uh, and I reassured him that I didn't actually need that, but um, I was going to pass it on. I passed on half it to the RFDS and another half to uh, my adult daughters to um, help them at Christmas time. But anyway, um, so I think he was really, really happy that that's what happened to his his gift as well. Oh, that's so sweet. So tell me a little bit about your cycling because your cycling became such a key part of your rehabilitation and you took cycling beyond what, yeah, the average Joe would normally do. So over that period of rehabilitation, how much did you ride your bike? Well, it just started off very gently because my wife insisted I start off gently because I tend to good, be a person. Good wife, good yeah, wife. Yeah, I tend to be a person that overdoes things and, you know, uh, throws myself into things. Um, so, yeah, we're just probably just going for a, a gentle ride. My first ride was 5Ks and then there's an 18-kilometre loop, which is quite popular at Maji, and I started doing that probably once or twice a week. I'd heard about the Maji Bushwalkers and Bike Riding Club, which I'd always thought about joining before, but I didn't really have the opportunity to fit it in because of my work schedule, being a shift worker. But now I had plenty of time up my sleeve. So I contacted them and, um, yeah, they were very welcoming, got back to me and, yeah, uh, I joined up the club and, yeah, just started, started riding with them on a Tuesday and on Thursday morning. They don't, they don't leave people behind, so they'll stop every now and then and let people catch up. And, um, yeah, the first ride I was way, way behind you know, probably two or three k's behind and they'd stop and not catch up. And People in this group are like 75 years old, 73 years old, 70, late, late 60. So, you know, when I was trying the group, I was 58. So I'm a, you know, young whippersnapper, 58-year-old, and uh, they're all way out in front of me. But anyway, gradually over time, I started to be able to keep up with them. And I found there's the, a few very competitive fellows in the, in the group. So it became a lot of fun. And um, after the ride, we go and uh, meet we get together and have a coffee so we're one of those annoying bike groups that sit around in a coffee shop so when did you start driving trains again are you back in the saddle so to speak and and driving now yeah um i started back again in about july i think it was last year so i'd had about a 15 month break from the trains and um we agreed to have a uh, graduated return to work it's a full-time job and um, we have what's called a, a blank line roster 
Um, so generally you have eight days of work and, and three or four days off and maybe seven or eight days of work, another three or four days off. And we're available to work any time over those in a 24-hour period. So we get a phone call generally the uh, day before at between 2 and 4 p.m. to let us know what time we're starting the next day. And it could be 3 o'clock in the morning, could be you know, 6 o'clock in the morning, could be midday. It's any time of day. So you find out the day before. Generally, you don't get a regular sleep pattern. Yeah, it's not like normal shift work. So that wasn't going to work for me, getting back to that sort of um, lifestyle. So we agreed that I'd be just on day work initially um, and working no more than three days in a row. And if I had a, a barracks job, so going down to Newcastle, staying in the barracks and driving a train back again the next day, if I had one of those, they'd give me a, a day off after that. So that was the initial agreement. It's gradually to where I'm at now. I'm working, yeah, the full eight days in a row. I can only I'm starting work between the hours of six a.m. and two p.m. It's a little bit more regular. Yeah, I initially was very exhausted. There was a period in between where they decided to put me on the full time work, working night times, and uh, that really set me back. I did. Uh, two night shifts and um, it took me about six or seven, I had about a few days off, took me about six days to feel okay enough to go back to work. Got all the headaches back again and and, and the brain fog and everything, which is no good for a train driver. I just knew that I couldn't do it, so I let them know and we went back to the this other agreement um, where I'm just doing day work. Yeah. This has been a hell of a journey. It's such a significant injury and then the recovery is such a long and slow one. You've mentioned that you have short-term memory loss on and off. Is there any other ongoing pain issues other than just if you if you work too long or if you push it too hard? So is it how are you physically today, for example? Fine physically, like um, I'm you know, riding doing 120k rides and that sort of stuff. So physically fine, but I do have to be careful that if I do overdo it, I still I get the headaches. Right. Uh, those things only occur if I overdo it. So um, and I do overdo it sometimes because that's my nature. <laughs> but generally, yeah, no, I'm physically fit and strong, and um, there's always that sort of fear that it's going to happen again. But I've been reassured that I've got no more chance of a uh, stroke than any other person, any other healthy, fit person. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. Have you taken any life lessons from all of this, anything that you've come out of and said, oh, my perspective on life has changed a little? Definitely. And, and those two weeks, three weeks in hospital and that meditating, it sort of uh, wouldn't want that stroke to happen again, but I guess it's sort of a, a period of enlightenment but that, that I had during that time, but you sort of lose that as time goes by. You get back into the ordinary mundane life and, and you lose all that um, wisdom that you thought you had, I, I guess. But I sort of let go of things more easily. I, I don't um, want to get involved in things that are, that are going to cause me too much stress. I think that's a, a wonderful lesson, if any. And I think a lot of us could probably do that a bit better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I guess I, I've also um, don't like to waste a minute, like if I don't like sitting around. So 
um, if I've got nothing to do, I'll jump on a bike and go for a ride. Just at least I'm out there enjoying nature, sort of thing. So as you get older, you know, the day's ticking, ticking on, and I think, well, I just got to fill my life. Just got to do. You know, you never know when you know something's going to happen. Um, right. So I think that's in, enjoy the people around you, and and um, and I like to be on good terms with people at all times. And if there is any conflict, I try and resolve that. If I can't, then that's I have to let go of that. Don't want to be the cause of any 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 dramas or conflicts, or be involved in those. And and um, if I can't fix them, then I need to step back and and. Uh, let go of it. So that's sort of the, I guess, one of the lessons, just to to live life as best I can and be on good terms with people. Thank you so much for speaking to me today and and walking us through this amazing journey you've been on. And next time I'm in New South Wales and see a, a coal train go past, I'm going to wonder if you're the one that's driving it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Lana. It's lovely to talk to you. Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone who you think will love it too. Thank you for listening to the Flying Doctor podcast.